You're listening to the Better Two Podcast with DM Needham. Donna here. Thanks for tuning into the Better Two podcast. Today's guest is Carmen Capano. She is a British television and film writer, an author, and she's in the process of launching her own production company. She's also an advocate for animals. Today, we discuss her trip of a lifetime that she took. It really isn't so much a trip, more of a move. When she was 18 years old, she decided to leave her home country and town of Glasgow, Scotland, and with five suitcases, moved to London, England. It's pretty daunting for an 18 year old who has no connections or friends really, but she did it. She did it to pursue the dream of acting. Well, acting may not have worked out and she talks a little bit about that. And it took her 20 years to realize what her true passion was. But now that she has, she has 26 books out. They're available on Amazon and they're in different genres. Plus she is prolific as far as screen and television writing as well. So I think it's a very fascinating podcast. We talk about a lot of different subjects. So I hope you enjoy it. Hi, Carmen. How are you doing? I'm fine. Thank you very much. So you are over in England, correct? I am, yes. I mean, you probably have gathered from, from the dialect that I'm not actually native born in England. Um, I was born in Glasgow in Scotland, uh, but I sort of, I emigrated to England at 18 and I've just stayed here so far. What brought you to England? Well, I, I, mean, I always say to people, um, it was the weather. And the truth is, it is slightly better weather down here. You know, it's ever so slightly warmer. It's less windy. It's less rainy. It's less snowy. But the truth is, I actually wanted something more than than at the time Glasgow could give me. Um, strangely, I, I am now a writer, and Glasgow's become quite famous for its various films and and authors and and all sorts of things that come out of it now. But back when I was eighteen and back as a child. We didn't really have anything like that coming out of Scotland, you know, apart from Take the High Road, which was a sort of very local soap set in the Highlands. That was pretty much it for Scotland. So it's changed a lot in the time. I think it's only changed because I've left. Typical, you know, if I'd stayed there, it never happened. <laughs> I understand because I lived in Shreveport for a bit and uh, Shreveport wasn't really known for anything. And then True Blood hit and a couple of other things. So Shreveport kind of built this career as, you know, part of Hollywood South. I mean, it's not totally South because we have Georgia and New Orleans, but all of a sudden it was like, there was this big boom of production there. I was just kind of like, okay, was this because I left? Like you said, <laughs> so I understand, I get it. Um, so you decided to go over to England. How hard was that when you went there? Was it something that you already had connections? So you know you could land on your feet or was this a brave new world for you? Yeah, I was one of these people who, and, and I'm still a bit like that, I kind of, if it's a big thing to be done, I don't stop to think about it. I, I hesitate over all the tiny, stupid little things in life. It takes me, if I go to um, a restaurant or a pub for a meal, it takes me half an hour at least to look at the menu and decide. I'm so indecisive. But the big things, I just kind of go, right, that's it, I'm doing it. And so um, I had decided, or I think on the Friday, that I was going to go to London. I've just turned 18. And I went out to, to Glasgow into the city centre, bought suitcases, came back, packed, bought a train ticket. And I left Glasgow at 18 with five huge suitcases. I mean, it was ridiculous. Um, but it was very much me a case of going, right, I'm definitely leaving. I'm not coming back. Therefore, I'm taking everything, 
And I did. I had five suitcases, a shoulder bag, a handbag, and a briefcase. Wow. <laughs> yeah, and I went on the train. So I arrived in Houston, and I literally knew nothing, knew no one, you know. Um, and so I found uh, along the route, you know, people were very helpful. Um, and so there were a couple of guys um, that were on the same sort of carriage as me in the train and they helped me on the train and they helped me off the train um, and then when I got to Houston I left all the suitcases in a, a left luggage department which you could I presume you can still do I don't know um, and got you know my ticket for all my suitcases and then I went off found a hotel and then made the trip one by one two suitcases at a time sort of thing to the to the hotel stayed in the hotel for about I think it must have been about must have been at least a week and a half and then managed to find a flat in in London but it was a it was a crazy time and I just kind of I never stopped to think about what I was doing whether it was safe whether it was a smart thing to do if it was the right thing to do I just did it I just did it you know I'd be quite horrified if any of my kids did it but you know but I, I was very much like that's what I'm doing off I go and so I went yeah it's it's interesting that you bring this up because yesterday one of my writer friends she had gotten a review of one of her books and somebody was commenting that the person that she wrote about was a 19 year old and it was actually some bits of her life and somebody left didn't even finish reading the book and left a one-star review and they're like well why would a 19 year old do that hmm. and, and my response was somehow when we hit 40 50 we suddenly forget the mind of an 18 and 19 year old where we're just like hey i'm doing this doesn't matter i'm doing this yeah and you do, you think you're totally invincible. And I remember my dad saying at the time, look, you know, if, if you get worried or if anything happens or if anybody even looks at you the wrong way, you don't even have to go off the train at Houston. Just, I, I don't know whether it does turn around and go back the other <laughs> way, but he obviously thought it did. You know, just come back. You can just come straight back. And I said, no, I'm, I'm going. And, you know, that's it. I won't be coming back ever. I mean, for a visit, obviously, but yeah. never to live again. And so off I went. <laughs> what did your what did your parents think about this yeah I don't really know I was a bit of a wild child in a way because I, I never did anything bad um you know I was never in trouble with the police or anything but I was pretty crazy actually and even as a young adult I was very sort of you know I'd do anything basically I'm very up for a dare um and I think they just kind of thought she's okay. She's she's actually underneath all of that quite sensible and able to look after herself. They must have been worried sick, but you know they let me go and 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 obviously everything was fine. You know I'm still here now, so it was this all is okay. true. This is true. So what is London? You know what year was this that you moved to London? So this would have been about 1984, I think 83, okay. something like that. Um, so London at the time, we were in the 80s, you know, here, it was all big shoulder pads and we were watching Dallas and Dynasty and, and all Knots Landing and all of that, yeah. you know. Same here. Very, <laughs> yeah, it was very businesslike and London was, I mean, I'd come from Glasgow, which is a biggish city, um, but nothing compared to London. I mean, London is vast by comparison. And so it was this strange new world. And at the time I was, you know, I wanted to be an actress. Um, so I'd gone down there to find roles. I was going to act and sing and I can't dance, but I was going to dance. We were going to do everything, basically. Um, and so I went down there to audition and to try and find, you know, a way into that way of life. And I did a few things. Um, I did a, a few plays and theatres, and, and, but it never really amounted to very much. I think I wasn't really good enough, truthfully. Um, but I had a nice time. And I kind of 
modified my ambition as I moved along. And then after about 18 months, I thought, okay, I am now looking back. I mean, 18 months seems it's neither here nor there, is it? You know, it's, yeah. it's just a, a really short period of time. And we've, we've had this COVID scenario for about 18 months. But back then I thought, okay, I've given acting 18 months and I haven't, I haven't become a major success, you know, um, and, and even crazy to think that you could do in that length of time, but I did. And so I thought, right, well, I'll try something else. And so I, I went into normal jobs and then eventually, about two years later, something like that, after I first moved to, to London, I came up to Birmingham. Um, and then a few years after that, after I'd done various other jobs, I went to university. Um, and then when I left there, I got married and had kids. And it was at that point when my, now what, well, my oldest was about five that I started to write. And so really, it was only when I got to about 40 that I actually found the thing I should have been doing from when I left school. You know, and, and it's quite sad in a way that I wouldn't say all those years in between were wasted because obviously I was having a good time and I was living life and it was very much a learning experience. But I should have been writing. I shouldn't have been doing, you know, filling in whatever forms I was doing, working in an office and working in accounts and, and all sorts of things. I should have been writing, you know, but I know that now. Hindsight's a wonderful thing. Well, and, and you got to consider this. How much of that life experience that you had has bled into your writing. Yeah, I see that is the funny thing. Not actually a lot, I think. Really? Maybe little bits. And there's the odd thing that someone says that is very characteristic of them, of that particular person, that I have put in my writing just because it's funny. And I kind of think, oh, I wonder if they'll recognize that phrase, you know, that they always say it, but do they know they always say it? Um, so there's that. But generally speaking, because of the way I write, where for me, I believe or I feel like the stories are sort of filtered um, through the ethos. So it sort of comes through the atmosphere, as it were, into my head and then down and onto the, the computer page. I don't affect, I don't sit and plot. I don't think up a story. It just kind of happens. So I don't know. I mean, I would say that there's really only one story that I've, one film that I've ever written that is actually about something that I witnessed in real life you know, or to my knowledge, everything else I think has been sort of very much made up. But I guess little elements of people that I've known or situations that I've been in do possibly filter in. And I always, people I don't like, I always say to them, I'll be very careful. You know, I'm an author, you'll find yourself in a book. <laughs> that is the uh, author's greatest weapon. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. It's about our only one, you know, so you might as well use it. Exactly, exactly. I mean, you have the person that's like, oh, can you put me in your book? Do you really want that? <laughs> Do you like really you might not turn out the way you think you're going to. Yeah. No, no. no. Um, so what, how, what kind of projects have you done? I know you've written a, for TV and film. Yeah. So what kind of projects have you done? So I've written 27 books. Um, I got a bit kind of carried away writing um, for a while and didn't publish anything. I had a couple of traditional publishers and I took my books back from them. So I then started out publishing them myself. Um, but I got, you know, sidetracked by other things. And so I've I kind of I've got this backlog to do now. But I've got um, several TV and film projects that are waiting to be greenlit. Um, some have major stars attached. Some have um, very well-known directors 
um, you know, there's all sorts of things, but between COVID and everything else, it's, it's just all get, got delayed now. So I was writing um, books probably for the last, I'd say about 15 years, but um, in terms of films and TV, I've only been writing those for probably about four or five years now at the most. Um, and I just kind of like, you know, side shot into that. But um, I set up a TV and film production company with um, a friend of mine, Louise Osborne, about 12 months ago. And with the view to, we were actually going to produce and, you know, create and actually get out our own films and, and TV things. But as I said, COVID got in the way and delayed that. And unfortunately, the, the work that I have with other production companies was also all stalled because of COVID and other things. So, and it's, it's one of those businesses where everything takes a really long time from when you first conceive an idea and start to write it to being made into, you know, film or TV just takes an age. I mean, it's a ridiculously long time. Are your are the scripture working? Are they, are they adaptations of your books or are they strictly for the, the visual? Yeah, both. Um, so some are adaptations of my books. There's a couple that are adaptations of friends of mine books. So basically, I have some friends who are authors who've asked me to um, make films from their films or TV shows from their books. There's only a few of those. Um, and then others have been specifically written for TV or, or cinema. Um, but also I'm cross genre. So I've written some are sci-fi, some are comedy, some are horror. Um, some are comedy horrors, you know, there's all sorts of things. There's literally every genre apart from erotica in there. It's the only thing I haven't done. Oh, and graphic novels. I haven't done any graphic novels. I'm sure I will at some point. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I haven't done any of them. Uh, but I've done everything else from animation up, basically. So all sorts of writing. As a writer myself, and I know this is a big question that's on social media a lot is, you know, you were saying you were traditionally published and you took your stuff back. For me, I mean, I see a lot of people that are like, well, I'm, I'm querying, I'm querying, I want an agent, I want a publisher. And to me, in a way, it's not saying I wouldn't want it to be traditionally published. I'm not saying that at all, because I, I had the opportunity to enter a contest. And when I saw the line in the contract that says, if we happen to make a book that's just like yours, you can't sue us. I was just kind of like, I'll keep my book. So the long way around my question here is, what do you see as a benefit for being traditionally published? And did you see a benefit because you took your books back? Yeah, so as an aside, to go back to what you were saying about the competition, that's also true of any competitions that, that are open for screenwriting. Right. So film and TV, they always say that. And it's it's quite horrifying because, you know, there's always that, oh, is this a con? You know, are they, they getting my ideas here? Um, so I was originally I was self-published and then with um, my owner's series. So I wrote um, a sci-fi series of 10 books. So I self-published the first one or two of those, I think the first one. And then I was traditionally published with another two standalone novels, but from two separate publishers. Um, because I kind of wanted to get the full experience of, you know, I think if you go with one traditional publisher and you have a bad experience, I didn't want to necessarily go, and write off all traditional publishing, you know, from, from that one right. time. So I had two different traditional publishers. And I have to say, um, they were both lovely. I mean, really lovely people, really very nice, very easy to deal with until there was a problem. Um, 
So for the one traditional publisher, they published my book. And I mean, she was she was a great editor in the sense that she said to me, your writing is very strong. We actually don't need, there's a couple of typos and there's a couple of um, things where you've duplicated the word the or something or other. You know, we need to sort that out. But there isn't really any flaws in your plot lines or anything. So there's nothing like that we have to do. We just have to kind of tidy up. So that, that was okay, and that sat very well with me, and the book got great reviews. However, they published it with a cover that I absolutely loathed and did not feel represented the actual storyline. And it was a, a cover where um, it was a girl who looked... It was The, the central character um, was someone who had, to some extent, and was still being beaten down within her life scenario. And she was facing this really tough time and it was going to be a real struggle for her to come through this. But the girl in the image just kind of looked a bit wistful. You know, she just looked like maybe she couldn't quite find the right pair of shoes she was looking for that day. You know, yeah. it, it just didn't come across at all. Um, and when I spoke to some people afterwards who bought the book, who were, you know, just just readers who I had no prior association with and said, what do you get from the story? And then what do you get from looking at the image? And there clearly was a mismatch between the two. And when I'd gone back to them and said, look, you know, I, I still don't like them. We're so many months down the line. I still don't like this cover. I think it's putting people off because they're not getting the feel of the book from it. And this thing about don't judge a book by its cover. We all do. We mm -hmm. all do. We're all very image conscious. That's just how it is. You can try not to be, but we still are. It's just one of those things. And they basically said to me, well, okay, we get that you don't like the cover, but we do. And so therefore that's the cover and that's it. Um, so there wasn't an awful lot I could do about it because obviously the contract stated that I could you know, come out of the contract um, after a certain period of time, but until that time I couldn't do anything. So as soon as that time period was up, I took my book back. So I think the thing about being self-published is it's very hard because you are literally doing everything for yourself from the marketing to what size font you want, you know, how many words and what your line spacing is and, and the thickness of your paper and how white your paper is and literally every decision, which as I said to you before, I'm not good with decisions. So I was like, yeah. should it be this thickness? Is the paper too white? Is it not white enough? Oh, you know, so, th so that was a big thing for me, but the autonomy, on the good side of it you know that you get to choose your cover and you get to choose what you want it to represent those are all real pluses and to be perfectly honest um because the markup in terms of what they were giving me for royalties um with the traditional publishers i earned about uh, i think i earned about 35 pence a book and now that i publish directly through amazon on my own i earn about 40 pence a book on a paperback. So there's no real difference in that side of it. Um, obviously, ebooks you earn more. So it's not about the money. It is really about the control, the autonomy, that the feeling that, you know, you as a writer, I think you probably do know best about your book. You know, and you might, it might be difficult for you to reach those decisions as to what is the best image or what is the best way to put it forward. But you really genuinely have the best interests of that book at your heart. And publishers just don't because they have so many books coming in. I mean, they're literally pumping them out one after the other that they have a very limited attention span on any one book. And it's a case of 
you know, get it done and dusted, get it out. If it flops or doesn't sell, well, you know, we've got another 55 coming out in the next few months. Whereas for you, it's important that your book does well. So I, I think, you know, all of those things need to be weighed up very carefully. You're, I mean, your book, when you're putting that much time in and it's your baby in a way, it may not be a physical baby, but just like the musician, just like the actor, all of the, all the creative types, it is something that's personal. It's part of your heart and soul that you're putting out there. And to have somebody go in and, and, and change something that does, or put an image on it that does not connect, it, it's going to bother you. Yeah, and I think more so now, because obviously now that I've been writing for film and TV, um, and I'm a very visual writer anyway, so I always have images in my head, but with writing scripts, you, you often have to do um, a thing called a treatment alongside it, which is basically, it's like a, a book blurb and a synopsis and, and everything else rolled into one, and you'll talk about, you know, this film is like this film crossed with this film or this TV show crossed with whatever, um, and you'll talk about maybe um, good actors that you might want in the role and how long the film is and all these things but you will also add in images and so therefore the images became even more important to me to get right because I realized it's, it's a real integral part of it what are you going to show me I'm going to show you something I have screen I, I worked on a television show my, ah, one of my main okay. characters I have ah. a whole bio including her where she grew up places images of houses so I know exactly what you're talking about. Exactly what you're talking about. A lot of people are just like, isn't that overkill? And I'm like, no, not if you need to. If you end up turning it into a TV show or a movie, you're going to need that back stuff anyway. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So You see, that's another thing. People don't realize how much work is actually involved in it. You know, they see what they see and they assume that that is all there is to it. But there is so much more. And, and so when people look at sums that people get paid for, for um, doing various things, it's always, well, you know, they got paid that amount. It's like footballers. The footballers mm. do get paid a vast sum, granted. But then they're out training every day, you know, and people don't think about all the things that are, are involved. And then, then you actually, and I've had this conversation with some musicians, then you have the fact that, oh, wait a second, he has an agent. Oh, and a lawyer and an accountant and... All these people get, you know, his trainer is going to take some money out of that. You people don't look at the percentage. They it's the the oh, 20 million dollars for a film. OK, but, you know, I talked to an actress and she's telling me how she's got an entourage of 18 people that work with her every day. OK, well, that's 18, pay, 18 period people she has to pay. Yeah. And people don't look at that. It's like and then what cracks me up is I don't want to pay four dollars for a book. But you pay $4 for a cup of coffee, that's going to be gone in a lot shorter time than what it is for a book. Yeah, it's really weird the way people look at books. Um, a way, way back when I first published, I went to one of these um, fairs and, and um, I had a stall with, with my books laid out on it. And I hadn't written many books, so I only had like two books, but lots of volumes of them. Um, and next to me, there was a girl selling a little crocheted things and one of the, the things that she was selling was a, an Ood which was a character from Doctor Who was it Ood I think they're called an Ood, and yes they, yes and they, they they've got these sort of tendrils coming down but it was only tiny it was only this size and she was actually charging I think nine pound for it and at the time my books were seven pound and I, and I kept looking at it and thinking okay if you buy my book it's going to even if you're an avid reader it's going to take you two to three nights just doing that 
how long are you going to spend looking at this oud? Really, what are you going to do with it? And it was crocheted, and people apparently bought them and put them on the mantelpieces and things like that. And so they're, they're just dust collectors. I could not get my head around why people were willing to spend £9 like that on that. But if they were coming to me for a book, I'd have to tell them why I'd written the book, what the book was about, you know, and I'd have to give them the spiel for like half an hour to buy a book that was less than, than that. It's just crazy. But that's, that's people. You'll never get around that mindset of what they think something is worth. It's funny you mentioned it because tomorrow I actually have a book signing I'm going to and I have two books out so very much like you and my first book I have three versions of uh, because the first book I published at the time I had a friend who worked at Barnes and Noble and I wrote a lot, wrote it, most of it at Barnes and Noble and they were closing that location and they have one last new writer's night she's like if you can get it done by then I'm like okay so I got it done got it printed everything but there's errors in it. And I did my cover and it's bad. The second one, it's better. Finally, the third version of it, it's professionally done. The second book, that was the contest book. First version's not bad. Second book, I tweaked. So here I will be sitting in your spot tomorrow. Fortunately, there'll be other authors because it's at a library. But yeah, I'll be sitting in that exact same scenario, except hopefully it won't be anybody with ouds. There'll just be other authors trying to hawk their wares. It's so strange. It's so strange. And I'm, I mean, I've been very, very lucky, really, with my books, because my readership ranges from about eight to 80, which is kind of bizarre nice. for the same yeah. books. Um, and, you know, and that's lovely. And I'd always tell this story whenever I, I get interviewed, but I had a lady come up and it's so memorable. I think I'll, I'll remember it till I die, basically. And she wanted a copy of all my books, signed copy. And she said, I need all the copies of the books that you've got out, she said, because my grandson's bought them all and he loves them and I want to buy them too so that we can discuss your books together. Well, I nice. was just, oh, nice. I was, you know, oh, I almost gave them for free away from it. I was so excited. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, so something like that, that is really lovely. And I think that's the biggest accolade you can get, you know, when people come up to you or, or write into you and say, oh, I so enjoyed this, love the story. So I'm hoping that the films and the TV work will get the same sort of recognition, fingers crossed, if it fingers ever gets made. <laughs> it will, it will, I'm sure it will. It's funny because, you know, talking about the first book I put out, I didn't do it on Amazon. I just was like, I'm not gonna do it on Amazon. So the, when I initially released it, I put it on Apple and I had some, I posted it in a Facebook group and this one lady's like, I really wanna read it. So I'm gonna have to find my Apple ID. She found it, same day. She bought it. She messages me and she's like, okay, I'm halfway in. This is this. I can't believe this. She ended up sending me message after message. And then we got into a chat afterwards about how good it was. And she recommended it to a friend. And, and as a new writer, this was just like the most amazing thing in the world. So I get that. And when you can connect with your writer, your, your readers, it's an awesome thing. However, and this is one thing I have to say for writers, if you go into social media, Somebody, it can be Instagram, it can be Facebook. Somebody will post, well, what don't you like about in a book? If you listen to everybody's comments in there, you might as well just stop writing right now. I know the rule is know your audience. The problem is sometimes your audience, they don't, they're not on the same page. Yeah, yeah. You, you cannot possibly please everyone anyway. So I think when I'm writing, I very much aim to please me. Because I think 
you know, I like to read things that are very well, that are thought provoking and very well thought out. Um, and I, I like to read things that are moral or if they're immoral, I want to see the right sort of ending. You know, so I kind of figure if I like it, generally speaking, that there will be others like me who will like it. That's probably very flawed thinking. But, you know, that's that's the route I go down. I mm. choose to go down. And so when I'm reading it back, when I when I come to edit them, um, if I get that kind of, oh, at the end, and oh, oh, I'm so excited, you know, then I think, OK, I've done a really good job. Because that is that is what you should get at the end of a book. You know, you should either be, if it's a sad book, obviously in tears, um, or you should be thinking about the issues that were raised within it. But it, it's got to have some reaction. If you just get to the end of a book and you go, oh, okay, that's finished then. You know, what's the point? What is the point? Yeah. So there has to be something deep and meaningful. For me, there has to be something deep and meaningful. And I think that's something I've carried through both from my books into the, the film and, and TV things. So, for example, um, this morning I finished uh, a new TV script. Um, well, actually, it's a film script um, and it's it's a comedy, but it's kind of it's a thing in two halves, effectively. So half of it is a quite a funny satire. And then the other side of it is very, very sad and very deep and meaningful. And the two intertwine all the way through, all the way through until the very end. And then because it kind of, the, the, the sort of satire, the funny strand kind of disappears towards the end and it all goes bad. And then you think, oh, this has all gone horribly wrong for this person. It's, it's going to end badly. But then it ends on an upbeat. Um, and so I kind of came out of that thinking, that's that's good that's something I would personally want to see on the tv you know and I think if you can do that because the stuff that I watch on the tv where I, I finish watching it and I go into the kitchen and I make myself a cup of tea and then if someone else came in and said what were you watching I couldn't tell them it hasn't registered it's just something that passed in front of my eyes but then there are other things where you know that that will stay with you for forever and you'll probably re-watch it and you'll tell other people you know, and you'll say, this was absolutely fantastic. You have to watch it. And that's what I'm trying to create. And I know that probably everybody who writes is trying to create that. But there are some people who are just in it for the money or in it for other reasons. I'm not. I'm in it for, well, I am in it for the money, but I'll tell you the reason for that in a minute. But I am in it to basically make something that's memorable and to make people stop and think. To make that connection. Yeah. It's about making, I mean... I had one, okay, my worst review I got is a three-star and it was for my first book. And she found the book. I had marketed it in a wrong place. I put it in a rock star romance group. Well, there's no romance in it. The guy's got a romance for cocaine. And she wrote, hate it. I can't believe I finished the book. Hated this book. Hated the characters. Said, so, and my husband was like, does this bother you? And I'm like, no. He goes, why not? I said, she finished it. So that's a good thing. You know, if she hated it so much, why did she finish it? Number two, she hated the characters, hated the story. Well, that's still an emotion. It still made her feel something. And, and when I re-released it, get this, she reread it and changed her review. Still said <laughs> it was very strange. And I'm like, if you hated it so much the first time, why did you read it again? because something in it captivated her. And she doesn't want to admit that, but clearly something did. You know, because if you really, if something's really bad, you just, you stop watching or you stop reading, yeah. don't you? You don't yeah. engage with it any further. Um, I had a review who, um, 
from, from someone who did lots of book reviews um, and said, my science fiction, it was about the owners, volume one, um, and it's a science fiction, it's a dystopian science fiction tale. And it's about these creatures who are, they're, they're called eons, but they're like big birds effectively with sort of human faces, but they're bald and they're feathered and, and all of this, and they keep humans as pets. And she'd said, it was a ridiculous concept because something that big could never fly. <laughs> and I thought, okay, but as far as I'm aware, physics said that also the bumblebee shouldn't fly or something, you know, there, it, it, it was just a ridiculous thing to, to pick on really of all the things she could have said. And it was like, yeah, it's quite a good story. She's told it really well, but these things could never fly in reality. And I just thought, Okay, and then the review mysteriously disappeared off Amazon. I think a couple of people wrote in and said that's a really weird thing to say, and it just kind of went. She must have she must have removed it, I guess. As soon, yeah, as, you, weird. as soon as you said that, the first thing I could think of was pterodactyls. You know, that's and here's yeah. here's the funny thing about reviews uh, on TikTok. This girl was posting that she had gone through Goodreads, and there was different reviews, and somebody posted a one star review because. They didn't like the genre the book was in. They didn't even read the book, but they just gave a one-star review because, well, they didn't like the genre. But this is the problem now. Amazon's changed a lot, hasn't it, recently? And mm -hmm. people can now do that. I think there was a time before when to leave a star, you had to write something that you hadn't, you know, some sort of review. I don't like it or don't understand it or whatever. But now people, in fact, Amazon are moving people towards just giving star ratings. And so it doesn't help anybody in any shape or form because you don't know what it is that person liked about the thing or disliked about it. You know, it's a kind of crazy way of doing it. I am obviously uh, half Italian. And so I have this Italian name. And someone in Italy, which really upset me quite recently, bought my book and gave it a one star. And there was nothing written about it. And I think it's because I expect that because of my name and they bought it on Amazon Italy, they'd just seen my name, they'd just bought the book, maybe they'd seen the, the cover and hadn't realized it was in English. I reckon they couldn't read it quite frankly. So they gave it a one star, but I don't know. Maybe yeah. they did read it and maybe they hated it, but there was nothing to say and all my my reviews tend to come in at four stars or five stars. So it was unusual and therefore it kind of stuck out like a sore thumb. And the fact that it was from Italy, oh, I was gutted. I, was, I went on oh, about it for ages. <laughs> well, and I mean, the thing is, and this goes back to what we, you were going to talk about in a minute, is reviews affect the bottom line for an author. Because if you don't, number one, if you're only leaving a star, we don't know what could we have done better. We don't know what we could have fixed. Now, we may not agree with what you're going to tell us. Then again, we may say, oh, you know, maybe they have a point. Let me look at that. Number two, you're affecting the bottom line. Some people, I've seen many people respond, well, when I see a one-star review, that actually makes me want to read the book. Okay. <laughs> not sure why. But the bottom line is, if you're doing it and you haven't read the book and you're just doing it because, well, I don't like the person, I don't like the cover, I don't like whatever, all you're doing is affecting that person's livelihood. And, and whether you admit it or not, you know, the, the readers, they really need to stop and think that this is somebody's livelihood. I don't care if it's a side hustle, whatever, people are trying to make a living at this and the costs that go into making that cover, hiring an editor, those are all big costs. Yeah. I think, unfortunately, this is the world we live in. Social media has made it so easy for absolutely everyone to comment on absolutely everything. And so people have got used to their voice being heard 
and everything, literally everything. I mean, you only have to look at Twitter and people are commenting on the weirdest things and then people comment on other people's comments about something, you know, and it just kind of goes on and on. There's all this trolling and everything else. And I think there was a time years ago when people, if they had something valid to say, they would say it. Now there's this, there's this almost this need for people to have their voice heard. And I think some of it is a mental health issue and we've brought it upon ourselves, you know, by the way that we live our lives and the fact that, you know, phones are everything. Everybody's permanently attached to their phone now or some form of, you know, interaction mm -hmm. on social media rather than with real people. And it's very sad, but it has made this society, it's almost one of self-validation. They feel that they have to say things, they have to be heard, they have to have a voice in order to exist. And so they spout all sorts of rubbish. Now, some of it isn't rubbish, some of it's very valid, but a lot of the stuff that you see in social media is just, I kind of wonder what else is going on in their day that is so boring, mm -hmm. you know, or so much of a non-entity that they take five minutes out to tweet about something that's totally inane. You know, but but that is the way we are. That That is how we are as a society. And it's a global problem and it's only gonna get worse. I mean, and, and not only that, you have the instant gratification aspect of it too. You know, like last night, um, Duran Duran launched a new record. And there was a time when I was 18 years old, 17 years old, that I would have been like, oh yes, at midnight, I will be up past midnight listening to this. Because back then you had to go to the record shop and you had to wait till they opened to buy it. And it was like, it launched last night. And I'm like, hmm, I'll listen to it in the morning. I didn't yeah. need the instant instantaneousness of it where some people i'm sure last night at midnight were like okay got my phone let me go i think we have lost a lot you know by this sort of thing i mean i'm not a materialistic person which kind of brings me back to what we were talking about with profits earlier um i i'm i don't aspire to have a fancy car i drive you probably won't know but i drive a, a car called the citroen berlingo it's kind of it pretty much a van really truthfully more than anything else um so you know i'm not really interested in the trappings of fame and fortune for me but what i'm trying to do is um, amass money so that i can from from the profits of book sales and TV shows, films, et cetera, et cetera, um, so that I can send this money off to various animal charities globally and I can help animal rescues. That's, that's my overall big aim and that's why I'm doing everything that I'm doing um, and that's what I want to do. But I think we have lost this sense of, I, I don't know what it is. I think things are too easy now. Some things are too easy. Everything has gotten easy. Nobody has to really work for things either it's it's all a little bit scary really i think how people perceive things now we've lost a lot of the value of things you know it's just everything seems to be seen as worthless and that's very sad yeah i mean before it was like if something was passed down to you from family it, was, it meant something nowadays mm -hmm. most most of the younger generations like i don't want that that's garbage so we've become a disposable society too that's the, you know, and it's not just things, it's people. It's like, well, we're going to cancel you now. Yeah. And the problem with that is sometimes, and I'm not saying cancel culture is wrong, but the problem with that is sometimes somebody can take like a recording that you and I are doing and edit, edit it to make it seem worse than it is. 
and then build this whole moment of let's cancel it. And I'm not saying that all cancel culture is wrong. I'm not saying that all I'm getting at is, is reality real now as far as I can take a clip and I can edit it. You see reality, reality TV. How many people have that have been on a show like Top Model, Big Brother, um, any kind of reality show like that? And they've said later on, after, years later, it was edited to make me look a certain way. Yeah, because everything is all about perception, isn't it? Truthfully, mm -hmm. you know, and we're not just talking camera angles to make someone look fatter, thinner, taller, you know, whatever. Um, we're talking about how people are perceived through things, you know, certain things. And we had um, Big Brother here and there were people having, you know, shouting matches on it and I'm sure they weren't doing it all of the time but of course those were the dramatic moments so they were picking up on that and and there was a universal hatred you know in some cases for some of these people and it's actually quite sad because that's got to have affected their mental health you know I mean you don't go on something like that and then you're you're totally vilified and then come off feeling absolutely fine about yourself you just wouldn't so I think we do really need to have to look at nowadays you know things and how how things are i had um i had a professional photograph taken a while back so a couple of years back um at an event and photographer, photographer showed me it and it looked kind of okay i mean i'm five foot two and i'm a little bit overweight i'm about probably about four or five pounds more than i ought to be which i know doesn't sound like an awful lot but on someone who's five foot two yeah. that's you know, it, it makes me look chunky. And I was standing next to someone who was tall and slim. And so the photographer had taken it into their own heads to elongate me and make me taller and slimmer. And I have to say, I looked absolutely amazing in the photograph, but it wasn't me. And so I said, no, just, just, just show the real me because actually anybody that's going to meet me is going to know uh, what have you shrunk a foot or something? What's happened to yeah. you in the last two weeks or something? You know, so, so I made them put out the real picture of me rather than than this, you know, photoshopped version because that's who I am. But I will be honest, I went to um, the Worcester Film Festival last weekend there. It was a gala event and black tie and everything. And I was very dressed up and I had the official photograph taken and then they had the photographer walking around the room and just taking sort of random shots and things. And then they put them online. And when I saw myself, I was quite horrified because in two of the pictures I was eating. So I was like, oh. <laughs> with a mouthful of food. And it seemed like whenever they took the picture, I was eating. It was like I was eating the entire night long. You know, It must have looked like that. Mm -hmm. But and then one of the pictures, um, I was obviously listening very intently to someone and looked a bit like a witch, quite frankly, because I was so intent. So I suppose that there is a time for picking you know if you're in the public eye picking the images you want people to see or not see but I certainly wouldn't go down the route of you know streamlining myself so that I look like I'm completely someone different that would just be crazy I when I had professional pictures taken last year um, by a friend he's like well do you want to photoshop I'm like okay sure because I've never had it done and he he, he kept photoshopping he sends me over this one image and I'm like I look plastic no back that off I mean because if somebody sees me in person they're gonna see all these flaws I, I don't need to be perfect I mean the truth of the matter is I'm not a spring chicken and I have wrinkles and you know what I earned every one of them earned every one of them 
I mean, I've, I've got a rescue dog here. So I go out dog walking. Um, I get up in the morning. I usually start writing from about seven. And then I'll walk the dog at some point, either in the middle of that or afterwards or whenever, depending on the, the British weather. You know, whenever it's not raining will be when I work to walk the dog. Um, but consequently, you know, I've been working. I'm going to go back to, you know, sitting down and, and typing. And so my hair's usually sort of just, you know, scraped up like this. I've got no makeup on. And out I go in the wind and the rain and everything else, you know. Mm-hmm. So these people who live around me um, in Bromsgrove are very used to seeing me without makeup and, and all of that. And then occasionally they see me with makeup if I've had to have a Zoom or something beforehand and they all kind of go, oh, you, you know, you look different. So I think it's fine to, to put makeup on or to do your hair or whatever and try and make the best of who you are. But I wouldn't want to be anything other than who I am. I wouldn't want to you know, be, be so different that I was unrecognizable, which I really don't see the point. Well, and, and I, I'm glad that some of Hollywood has basically, with Instagram, I will give them, that social media I will give you kudos for, because some of some of Hollywood is like, look, this is me. This is who I am. You know, warts, wrinkles, whatever. This is me. This is the real me. Now, mind you, you can still put a filter on it, but it's still not as heavily Photoshopped. You actually see the person for who they are more so. Of course, yeah. it also can be a slightly crafted image of what they want you to see, but it's still something different. So yeah. and I think when you've got people like Kate Hudson, for example, who does that on, on Instagram quite a lot, um, she is just gorgeous anyway. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't matter if she doesn't wear makeup or her hair scraped back or she's doing the dishes, you know, she just does look gorgeous and she's young. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think regardless of whatever else is going on in your life, if you have useful skin, you know, it is a huge bonus. And once that's gone, you know, nothing ever looks that great again. Afterwards, you can sort of pull it up, but it's never going to look the same. So you just have to accept it, really. And I, and I give kudos for like Paulina Poroskova because she's out, out, she's put herself out there, no makeup and raw and emotional, and she's willing to own who she is. And, and you know, with Hollywood and the entertainment industry, usually if you're out over 40, unless you are a name or a yeah. character actor, you have no value. And that's, yeah. that's sad. I mean, why, why should women over 40 have no value? Well, that's something that I am trying to change. So quite a lot of my parts um, that are written, my characters are for women who are over 40. Um, in some cases, much, much older, because they also have a story to tell, you know, and it's very sad that like you say, Hollywood sort of categorize them as someone's mother or someone's grandmother. You know, um, and so what I'm trying to do is to change that. And we're looking at characters who are still, you know, still very much vibrant, still have a, a life to lead, still have something to do, something to tell. They have value. Um, but I think, no disrespect to Hollywood, I think our British actors and actresses are slightly better at that than 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 your, uh, you know, fellow countrymen. Because I mean, people like Helen Mirren and you know, Dame Judi Dench, yeah. You know, they just go for it. They don't really don't care what it is their character has to look like. It's all about the parts, all about the acting for them. And I don't know if, and I'm trying to think who, Julia, uh, Julia Roberts is quite good. She does that. She's quite good at just going for it. But I can't imagine Demi Moore ever going, right, well, I'll take the makeup off and all of that and I'll, I'll play a really gritty part. I just I just don't see that. But Mary Steenburg in, in a little bit, but Kate Winslet, of course, she's, once again, on your side of the yeah. pond, I mean, they're, they're actresses that are willing to embrace who they are. And 
I think it may be because they are somewhat removed from Hollywood that they're more in line with their craft that they're willing to do it. You know? Yeah, I, I think Britain puts more of a value on people looking real than, than they do in Hollywood. But we are, you know, we, we do get captivated by all the beauty and everything and all the glamour that comes out of Hollywood. And I think we are only ever a few years behind America. So we are catching up and I think it will change here. If the trend continues, I think it, it will. So, you know, people like myself coming in and trying to write scripts and stories for older women, hopefully that will continue. We need more of that to happen so that we see real women. Um, but, you know, I, I'm not in control. I'm only a writer at the end of the day. So we need the Hollywood big wigs to come down and go, right, come on, we're going to do this. How many scripts do you have like that? <laughs> and that, that would be... The problem lies with you have older men who are still looking for the ingenue. They're still looking for the, you know, the Marilyn Monroe type sex, sex appeal that she's going to get men into the box office. But here's the funny thing. Women watch movies, too. And, you know, it's I've seen the trend lately that as far as romance, that a lot of people don't want the young, uh, young person young woman to be skinny and perfect they want her to be a chubby chubby girl they want somebody who's real in this romance novel to be with the hunk which once again that's still we still are setting up disney princesses even if it's not really disney princess but i understand they want the reality i do and for me as a writer i'm setting my books in the 80s and it's funny because you're talking about moving to london in 84 and that's right where i'm writing right now in London in 1984, but I'm starting out with an 18 year old girl who is a model who her life, you're going to go through her whole life. And yeah, eventually she is not going to be perfect. And the thing is, I also deal with the mental health issues of these people. It's not just all about the glamour and everything. It's about, okay, I've come off stage. Now what? You know, suddenly I'm not making these castings because I've gained two pounds. Yeah. You know, these are the things that people, when they look at Hollywood, they don't look at the mental health issues of, and it's the same thing with social media. You have the people that hit it big on social media that one day, oh my gosh, did you know my video got promoted? I had over a million views and the next day you have five. What mental health aspect, and it goes back to what you were saying about the, you know, in love with yourself. If that's not reality and these people really don't know you and they like the one thing you said and they're not going to continue, how are you going to navigate that? I think that, I mean, I'm starting to see a trend now. Um, on Facebook, just earlier today, I noticed that uh, someone who's a, a friend on Facebook had put something about they were going to call um, their friends on Facebook because they had more than 2,000 and, and the, you know, only a tiny proportion of those actually interacted in any shape or form, you know, over a long period of time and so they'd said okay we're, we're going to get rid of these friends you know um, and I've seen quite a lot of that recently on Facebook but it seems it's, it's a strange thing because when we're doing all this interacting as I said before on these various media things we're not interacting in real life or with real people um, so I try not to go on it very much but you know like every mum I've got three kids and so two don't live with me anymore because they were off at university and things but when they were here and we were around the dinner table, you know, they'd all have their phones out and I'd have to say, can you put your phones away, can you put your phones away? But it does build into the self-esteem thing because, you know, if they've put their phone away for half an hour or an hour, 
and they come to look at it and no one has texted them during that time, they almost have a kind of meltdown, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think it, it's all feeding off the same thing. And I don't really know where we go with it other than to, to really restrict it. And I don't even know if we can do that now it's gone so far. There's so many social media platforms. It's scary. And there's so many media that we don't even know about. I mean, just because we know about the big ones, the younger generation knows more than we know. And, yeah. you know, something popped in my head after when you, before you were talking, but don't believe your own hype. And I think that's the one thing that they used to talk about if you hit it big. Don't believe your own hype. I think that replies heavily to social media. Yeah. Because it's all about hype. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, every so often I Google myself, right, to just to see if there's anything there that I don't know about, because sometimes there is. Um, there's often sites where you've probably come across this yourself as an author, where there are random sites where they say, oh, you know, do you want to read the latest book from Carmen Juan? No, you can get it here for free. And obviously it's some sort of hacker site. So I always keep an eye on them and report them. Um, but then you see something else and you think, oh, I never put that photo of me up and somebody else has or it's some other information about you. And that's quite weird. That is quite weird. Um, it doesn't happen a lot, but it does happen. And, you know, when you look at it and there's pages and pages and pages about me, you know, it's about my books on this site or that site and here's it, here it is on Amazon and here I am on a blog and here's my Twitter account. And then I'm talking about a film or something else. And so there's all these pages and you, you kind of think, God, I'm really famous. <laughs> But of course I'm not. Yeah. You know, but there's 10 pages on Google devoted to me. I mean, it's ridiculous. You know, yeah. so you would look at that and think, oh, this person's really, really, really well known, but I'm not that well known. You know, so a lot of it is hype. And you know, if I were to get famous, as obviously other people do, um, you do wonder what would be said about you, you know, that that you'd never said or you'd never done or whatever, because you couldn't really then get to the point where you were, you know, saying, well, I never said that or I never did that. It must be very hard to be famous, to be a celebrity and to have things said about that, you know, is untrue. You know, so whether it's hype in terms of, you know, great stuff being said about you that's that's just being bumped up for whatever reason or your PR department's done it or whether it's people talking about you in some other way, it's something you have no control over. And we all had that before because before social media, People gossip, people talk to yeah. the street, you know, but now that gossip is global. It has a global yeah. reach, you know, so it's a whole different scenario, really. That was one of the reasons I chose to start my books in the 80s, because you have a you have a version of celebrity where, yeah, you have the gossip columns and you have, well, such and such and such was at such and such party. And the person sitting there looking at it going, I wasn't even there. I was across the country or whatever. You didn't have the instantaneousness of it. I mean, now, like yesterday, you had that accident on the movie set. And yeah. by the end of the evening, you had all these facts. And it's like, everybody's just reposting this. And I'm not saying Alec Baldwin's a saint, but I'm like, do you realize what he's got to deal with now yeah. in his head? And nobody, and, and I'm not, I mean, the families and everything else, it's just like, everybody just wants that news. They're, it's like, dare I say, Frankenstein with pitchforks. They're all just clamoring for that bit of information. They need that information, like um, the remains of the gentleman who ended up killing his girlfriend that we had the big manhunt over here. I'm not sure if they found the remains and that's just been like, everybody's clamoring for When are we just living through other people's lives and we're not actually living our life because we need that 
connection. We need that gratification. We need that, dare I say that fix, that fix of gossip that somebody else, the Kardashians, oh my gosh, let's see, we had the big engagement. Okay. One person shared it. And then for the rest of my day, every other person on my feed in Instagram, I don't know how many times I heard about it. Yeah, it's very strange, isn't it? Mm -hmm. You know, but it, it, it is the way of the world. I mean, so for example, when, um, for example, if you're writing horror or anything, it's very hard nowadays to find a way, you know, that isn't corny for the heroine who's being chased through the woods or wherever it is, or, you know, chased up a dark lane um, to not just be able to pull out her mobile and phone the police, you know? Yeah. And of course they have trackers on the phones and you have, you know, find my phone and find my relative and all these different apps. So you have to, you know, they have to have run out of battery or they have to have lost their phone or someone's taken it or it's been broken or, you know, it's all very contrived, but that's because people nowadays are glued to their phone. Mm -hmm. You know, so if you're writing anything that's contemporary, you've always got to write in something about the social media or something about their phone or something, because that's the world that we live in. Right. You know, right. and it, it's just part of the, our, our world now. And that's as this because it is a series as this goes on. It's like I have to slowly build that in there when when they when they eventually have kids and their kids are on you know social media. I have a situation because I don't write in order, kind of like you, whatever comes, comes. Um, I have a situation where I have the daughter looking, going, mom, you were married before. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because she, it wasn't something that they really talked about. Yeah. But the kid yeah. goes online and finds this and it's just like, how do you, you know? Oh yeah. I'm, I mean, it's like photographs, <clears throat> isn't it? So I've got photographs, a few photographs of me when I'm very young. And then there are some of me sporadically taken when I was growing up and then as a teenager. And then there are no photos, to my knowledge, of me from when I was about, probably about 18 to 22. So four years there, roughly. Um, simply because I'd left home. I was living in London originally, as I said, and then eventually I moved up to Birmingham. I didn't have a camera. There might have been pictures that were taken of me when out with friends that they might have, but I certainly don't have any of those photos. So I know what I look like, I can remember, but nobody else knows. There's, mm -hmm. there's, no, there's no record of that. Um, and then again, you know, I started to take a few pictures here and there. So I'd have some when I was 24, 26, 28, and then all the way up. But there were only a few for every year. But now with cameras on your phone and, you know, digital cameras and on all of that, my kids must take, 40 pictures at least a week wow. at least you know I was lucky if I took one roll of camera a year you know it's a yeah. whole different situation and so they delete things but they also hold on to things but they've got all these memories of things that I don't have because your memory memory is a funny thing it's very selective and I find mine is often stirred by smells just as much as it is by um, visual things so I can, um, for example, certain, a, a certain smell of bolognese sauce, not every type of bolognese sauce, but certain ones will take me back to uh, Italian household when I was a very little child. Um, so things like that. But they have, a, they have an actual record of pretty much every single day of their lives. I don't have that. There's huge gaps in mine. You know, that's quite weird. But, okay, I'm sure you went to concerts as a younger woman, maybe even now. No? Okay. Okay. But a person going to a concert now, I got to go to Live Aid, which was awesome. 
I had a camera, so I took some pictures. But nowadays, I, they'll show a concert video, and I see people just doing this. And I'm like, are you watching the concert? The sound's going to be crap on your phone. Excuse my language. But are you really enjoying the experience? Are you really in that moment if you're sitting there video, you know, videotaping your phone? You know, yeah. the concert. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Yeah. They're almost voyeurs within their own lives, aren't they, really, during that? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I admit I was a little bit guilty of that when, you know, when the kids were little and they would put on, they did, um, oh, well, they did several things. I think they did a Christmas carol and all sorts of, you know, little school plays, um, the Pied Piper and things. And I would sometimes, you know, videotape bits of that, but I'd try and videotape segments rather than the entire thing so that, you know, years later, now we can watch those little clips back. But people did just sit and videotape the entire production. And like you say, they were watching it through this little lens and not getting, you know, the, the actual atmosphere and, and the whole feel of the live performance, crap as it may well be, but, you know, <laughs> it was still our kids, you know, we right. loved it. Um, but they, they didn't get that because they were just too busy, you know, recording it for posterity. And so there has to be, there has to be a level, there has to be a balance, really. You know, you want to be able to look back and, and have memories and, be able to to look back on things but not at the sake of enjoying them at that moment yeah and i mean that's the that's the thing i mean par as parents you do videotape your kids because you want that that fond memory to look back on but when you go see a band or you go to a play of just whoever do you really want to film it i mean i got to watch faye dunaway do um a performance of maria callas in the front row and seeing her, and I guess she is one of those actresses that would, and Jessica Lange, those are two American yeah. actresses that would just go for it. But I had front row, and I mean, I sat there, and we didn't have the cell phone technology, but I couldn't even imagine if I had the cell phone technology. I am watching a legend, Faye Dunaway, right there in front of me. Why in the world? I got to see Yul Brenner do The King and I Live. Why would I, I can look back and remember it fondly. I was in that experience. Would it have had the same validation if I was watching it through my phone, I might as well have just stayed home, got the movie and. Yeah, yeah. But then there used to be, I'm sure you remember, well, maybe they didn't do it in America, but they did it here, where someone who had, you know, a camcorder many years ago would go to the cinema when a film first came out and videotape the entire film and then we'd say yes. we, we had pirate videos um, that would always be. Uh, and, and the camera would judge her because they dropped uh -huh. to the popcorn or something, you know. So there, there was always that as well. But yeah, you don't get that anymore, don't think. Don't think that happens. No, the, the, the first time I actually saw Moulin Rouge was over at a friend's house, and she's like, "Yeah, one of my friends did this." And I'm like, "Okay." And I remember watching it that way, and I was just kind of like, <laughs> "I did not like the movie." I was just like, "This is not." I love the movie now, but at the time, I was just kind of like, "No, no, this is bad. This is bad." I mean, you lose something. You just lose something. Uh, you yeah. mentioned pirate sites, and I wanted to talk about that for a second. The funny, uh, my husband joked that I had arrived because somebody was trying to pirate my book. It's like, okay. But the funny thing is, when I, the funniest one I've looked at is a book that I'm currently writing, okay, that is nowhere, anywhere out in the ethos or whatever, they were advertising that they had it. I had put up a cover mock-up on Goodreads, and they stole somebody's name from one of my other reviews. And put it that she created this review for the book and that they could, that you could get it there. And I'm like, all right. And I've told, when I've done book parties, I'm like, if you can't afford a book, don't go to a pirate site. 
if you want a book, talk to me. We can arrange something. I can give you an art copy, but don't don't risk your your financial health for a book that's not even real. It's really crazy. I mean, I know when they when they did the the hustle program, you know, they said I don't know if grifters really do say this, but they said, oh, you know, you you can't con an honest man and and all of this business. Now I don't know how true that is, but there is this element now where people want something for nothing. I think that there's, there's a huge problem with this, you know. And so this is why people get sucked into various cons. Now, there's a lot of cons going on at the moment. I had one the other day um, on my phone that was like, hello, you have just been charged £1,588 for a new blah, 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 blah. You know, um, so there's, there's that sort of thing, which obviously people are responding to. But then there's also the, you know, the too good to be true. If you pay £1.99, you can get this amazing thing that's actually worth 500 pounds or something and so people are being taken in by it and I think it's very very hard now to distinguish what what is real what isn't real you know with the fake stuff um because the the people who do this sadly the people who do this tend to be very very smart um and the hackers I mean I had my um my my my, uh, email account hacked into several times actually um and you just, I, I don't, I wouldn't have a clue how to do that. I can turn on the computer and that's pretty much it, right? That's that's where I'm at. I do word processing on it, turn it on, turn it back off and put it away. These people are really smart. They can do all sorts of things on it and they turn that to crime. I mean, how sad is that? Why don't they go and do something that benefits the world? Why don't they go and make some program that is fantastic? You know, why don't they go and help cure cancer? You know, because they clearly have intelligence. They can clearly do something with their brain and that's what they're doing with it. That just makes me sad. Well, I I think back to the end of Fight Club where basically they blew up all the banks and the credit card companies so everybody was debt free. Instead, you take everybody's information and then you start messing with the little guy and putting them more in pain. And I'm not saying that they should go and do something illegal like, you know, clear everybody's bills or whatever, but do something more positive than trying to scam people that are already in financial straits. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But you know, there's so many bad people in the world. This is the trouble, isn't it? You know, we're just overrun with them, unfortunately. And there's a lot of good people, but there's an awful lot of bad ones as well. Sadly. Right right after my husband died, I think it was two weeks after he had died. I received, now we're, I'm in Illinois. I received something from the state of Pennsylvania it was a debit card in his name for unemployment benefits during COVID. And I'm like, how? So I called him. I'm like, he's never been in Pennsylvania. He lives in Illinois. He's deceased now. But it was fraud, total fraud. And I mean, it was two weeks after he died. Somebody was already on that to try to scam. And that must have been very emotionally painful for you to, it, to even have to deal with. It was. It was. It was just kind of like, I got enough on my plate. I don't need to deal with this. But it's also the other part of it was like, I need to deal with this because I don't know what harm this person could try to do. Granted, everything after a certain point after his death is moot, but you don't know what these scammers are going to try to do. Yeah. And and that's the thing. When somebody dies, somebody will be like, oh, I can use their social security number because that happens a lot in this country. It has happened for years. It, it used to make me laugh because when at a certain point in the eighties, I remember my job made me bring in my social security card. And they're like, it's because of immigration. We want to stop immigration. We're going to do this. Da, 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 da. 
all right, fine. So that's the way it became. You know, you, you had to bring in your social security card and your ID when you start a job, okay. And then eventually you still have to do that and nothing changed. You know, I was working in insurance and we still had people that were using somebody else's social security number sometimes. It, it just, it boggles the mind because it's like, this is all kind of theater. Sometimes real yeah. life is theater. So, but I'm sure you guys have issues with certain things over there, just like that. So let's go back to your books. So you said you write, you wrote multiple genres. What is your favorite genre to write? Um, I don't tend to think, right, when I'm going to write uh, a love story now, or I'm going to write a romance, or I'm going to write sci-fi. It tends to be the story comes to me and then it automatically falls into one or several genres. Um, so the first ones that I ever did were sci-fi and I've probably done predominantly sci-fi books. In terms of film and TV, I do a lot of comedy, um, do some sci-fi, a lot of drama, a lot of psychological thrillers. But in terms of the books, it seems to be predominantly sci-fi. So clearly I must like that more. I think what fascinates me about sci-fi is the fact that anything is possible apparently apart from large things flying but you know but anything is possible um and obviously the world that you create becomes very real in your head and you can have that world however you like what i've always done up till now mostly um is to have the worlds in my books being pretty much very much a real world um so there's no you know triple moons or purple seas or anything like that you know it's all the water is the same color as here you know night follows day the same way it does here it's all very logical and all very the same but the stories themselves are very sci-fi so what it really is is I guess the characters and the landscape of it are very grounded in, in what we know but the story is what makes it sci-fi it's the plot itself um, but there, there are very human issues covered within them so they are sci-fi, but they are very grounded in reality. So there's there's war and there's genocide, and then there's gen just this sort of feeling of oppression, you know, dystopian books where people are fighting it effectively against the system because it's just horrible and vile, and why would you want to live like that? So they're trying to change it. And it's very, very human. It's all very human all the way through. Um, I've never really been interested in, in writing about, you know, little alien things that scurry across the earth or whatever. I did just, I like sci-fi films um, in terms of, you know, space operas. I like that, but I don't particularly want to write a space opera. Understand. Yeah. So when you watch TV as a writer, and I, I, this is me, I understand. When you watch TV, does it drive you nuts if you can figure out the plot like early on? Yeah, I always could. And it doesn't yeah. bother me that I always know, but it drives my kids insane because I can't keep my mouth shut. So <laughs> and then I'll go, and, well, you know why she's, and they go, don't tell us, don't tell us, mom. And I say, oh, he's just about to, oh, you're going to ruin it. You're going to ruin it for us like you always mm -hmm. do. And I tend to be always right. Um, so they hate that. But it doesn't bother me too much. There are occasions, there's been the odd thing that I've watched and it's done such a major twist or such an unexpected twist towards the end. That even I've gone, oh, didn't expect that. You know, and that's, that's really clever. But generally speaking, I tend to know how it's going to end. Um, and I, when things have got, so um, 
when things have animals in them, I like them to end really well. I get very upset if the animal dies. I don't like that at all. <laughs> I understand. And things, yeah, I, I get really, oh, and I cry. I cry for days. If something upsets me, I cry for days about it, and I go on about it and on about it. It's, it's awful. I drive myself insane. But I'm the same when I'm writing. So um, the other day I had to write um, a really hard scene, and it actually was about an animal, and I was very upset, and I was crying. And then I was kind of just morose really for the rest of the day so it must be quite hard living with me truthfully because you know I do get affected to a large extent about what I'm doing sadly I think you know for me when I started writing I mean I was writing before I was acting and then I was acting and you know one thing my actor acting teacher said you have to live in the moment and I think that's very true for a writer that is trying to emotionally connect with the story I've talked about this before because I knew my husband was on borrowed time and I started writing a scene. This was when he was still alive about a woman losing her husband. And so I am sitting there and I'm writing and I am in tears and he passed my office and he's like, hi, honey. And I'm like, stop and cry. And I'm like, hi, and be totally fine. And then he'd go back and I'd start writing again and I'd start crying again because emotionally I was feeling what she was feeling. So, and, and in reality, I think I was kind of grieving before he left, but, you know, I think as a writer, if you can connect emotionally with the characters, then it's going to transcend the page or yeah. the film. I mean, to be honest, if you don't feel what you're writing, how is your reader going to, you know, or right. your viewer going to, you know, you have to be able to, to feel that and understand it and to be able to translate that into either images or words that, that they can then associate with and feel and I think there would be nothing worse than if I was to see one of my films made um, and it didn't do that you know if, if I'm sitting watching something and I know I was upset writing it and then it gets made and then it's not as good <laughs> I think that I'm going to really struggle with I'll be strangling the director I think <laughs> but, but I mean that 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 is a problem that you don't have as an author because you know, you write it, it goes out there. But obviously, film and TV, you know, you write it, and as wonderful as your writing might be, anything can happen to it in between it leaving, you know, your screen and, and ending up on the big screen, as it were. So, fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. I mean, how many books have you read? And it's like, you watch the movie, and you're like, that was nothing like it at all. Nothing like yeah. it at all. And I get what you're saying about the download. I mean, my first book, it was very much downloaded. It wasn't so much that I sat there and plotted it out. It's a, it's a rock star's journal. I had no intention of, it ended up changing the ending change because I was driving my husband to work and it's like, the character's like, I got a better ending for you. And I'm like, you're yeah, right. It's like, no, I got a better ending. And sure enough, I used it and it works, but it's one of those things where it's like, I try, I have sheets of plots. I have sheets of outlines. No, I don't follow them because, you know, somebody will say, I got something else for you. And I know people and are I like, think go ahead. That is the best way. Absolutely the best way. Um, you know, when I wrote, I wrote a book called Split Decision and literally the, the character came to me in the, in the shower, you know, and um, told me her story. And I thought, OK, fair enough. And I, I only got a bit of it. I knew what happened to her. I didn't know how it happened, why it happened, how it ended. But I trusted it enough to just go with it. And as I was writing it, the rest of it downloaded and came to me. And so I completed it. And, and even towards the end, I was like, oh, oh, what oh, is about that to happen? Oh, didn't expect that to happen. Oh, what's he doing now? <laughs> you know, yeah. and so it was all a surprise to me as well. And I think that's half the fun of it. Whereas if I'd 
sat down and wrote, okay, and then this happens, and then that happens, and then the next thing happens, I think it would have felt like a chore, just, you know, plodding through it. But this way, it was it was exciting to write and hopefully, therefore, exciting to read. And I mean, two things, you know, people look at you when you say, oh, well, my characters talk to me. It's like, okay, so there's a definition. Some people would say that's schizophrenia, but, you know, it's not that. It's literally these people, these characters that you bring to life, giving you ideas. So you have to, you have to embrace it. The other thing, and I'm sure you know this too, you sit down to write because you need to write, because if you don't write, you feel kind of off. So you have to write. And if you're writing and it's not flowing and it feels like you're trudging through mud, you know, you're forcing it, but you still keep doing it because you got to get it out. And you may use it later. You may not, but there are times, you know, when you're in the flow and you know, when you're not, is that true for you? Yeah, I, I, I've never had writer's block touch wood um, till now. And generally speaking, I tend to work on several projects at once. So I don't really ever get where I don't know where I'm going with something. Although I don't know where I'm going with something, I just trust to it and it just always comes. But there will be days when I wake up and I might be working, for example, on um, maybe a, a TV comedy script and I don't know, uh, a thriller film. And I'll feel more like writing one or the other, or I might feel like writing both. I might actually write a little bit of both. But usually I'll write one or the other and it's very much I'll wake up and I'll think, okay, I kind of want to work on this today. And so I do it like that. And I think um, I'm also not very big on housework. You should you? I understand. I do clean the house, but, but not. I understand right completely. <laughs> so there are days when I wake up and think, mm, maybe I won't write today. I'll clean the house <laughs> because it's so mucky. It takes the entire day, and then the next day I go back to writing. So it kind of works for me in a way, really, because it, I just it gives me that ability to let things slip to a degree where I don't have to go on top of the washing or the ironing or whatever you know I can let it mount up a little bit because I know that I then get a day's reprieve from writing when I can get it all done and it allows me that that mental come down for that day where my brain isn't downloading stuff it's thinking about right how long has the washing machine got left before I put on the next wash and you know all those sort of trivial type things that, that I normally don't think about during the day so that that's how I work it and that works quite well but now that Louise and I have got this production company and obviously we're moving into producing things as well, I now have to take time out too and think, okay, how are we going to schedule this and how's that going to work? And I've got to do, um, I've got to rewrite notes on this, but, but this other thing's come in that I need to sort out and, oh, somebody wants this off me. So I'm kind of jumping even more from one task to the other now than I ever did. So it's just as well that we're in this Zoom, in this one contained area, I would not be taking my computer all around the house to show you. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. I get it. I completely get it. Trust me, I get it. Um, so your books are available on Amazon and you have all your social links, which all those links will be in the uh, show notes. Is there anything you want to add to the conversation? Well, really just what I said earlier. So my profits are going towards animal rescues. Um, whether you like animals or not, that's where they're going. Um, I'm trying to change the world bit by bit, animal by animal. So, you know, whether it's donkeys, horses, rabbits, guinea pigs, dogs, cats, everything, but this is this is my overall plan. So if you can, please buy an ebook rather than a physical book from me because the ebooks I, I earn more and therefore more money goes towards the charities and please do buy a book and help and if you do buy a book which I hope you do please leave a review because so many people don't it's incredible 
So thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dawn. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you, Carmen. Thanks, guys. I hope you enjoy the conversation with Carmen. It is definitely, you know, it makes it as a writer, it gives me a lot of food for thought about traditional versus self. And, you know, I know where I'm at and I don't regret backing out of the contest because as she said, you know, that lines in all the contracts and it's a, it's a risk you take. So you can either go for it and risk the story or you can keep it and self-publish either way. As she said, the cost as far as print doesn't really matter. There's not a huge amount of difference in your royalties, but it's food for thought for a lot of novice writers because, you know, some writers hold off until they query and get an agent and others say, well, I'm just going to go and I'm just going to do what I got to do. We also, you know, the conversation talking about actors and the differences between England and America. I, I think that's, it's an interesting take because we do, even though we are one world, there are still very much differences in our society. So I hope you enjoy the show. If you want to follow, we do have a Patreon account. We also have a Twitter account. We have a Facebook account. So you can follow the podcast at Better2Podcast. If you wish to be a guest on the show, you can drop me an email at Donna at the Better2Podcast.com. You know, you can talk to me if you have a question or if you have a question for a guest and you need some more information, I can always reach out to them or you can check the links in the bio for their stuff. Either way, you have a connection. And if you want to see the video, what the person actually looks like that during the conversation, we have the YouTube videos. As always, thank you for tuning in. I appreciate your support. And I guess I'll catch you next time, guys. Bye. You're listening to the Better Two Podcast with DM Needham. Thank you.